So much. 
When troubles I face Why would I hunger For power or riches or fame My God is so much better Than all of these things They know the battle is done. My God is stronger, the victory is already won. Yeah, He died for my ransom and rose up on the third day.
Lord, we do. We live to worship you. Worship is not just what we're doing in this room. This is a part of it, God. Everything we do, every job we do, every interaction we have, everything we do with our bodies, everything is worship, God. And we worship. We literally live to worship you. I pray all across this room there'd be a renewed sense of that, that, God, we are here on this earth to give you honor, to give you worship, and give you praise with our very lives. Lord, we remember, um, Lord, someone who originally was from uh, Praise Began that's in the hospital today, uh, Walt Michalowski. We pray a blessing as he's in Christianity today with pneumonia, that you would bless him, that you would pour your spirit out on him, that he would feel the strength and the prayers of your people today. Would you bless his life, restore him to health, do a miracle in him today. And Lord, as we worship you today, let let everything we say, let everything we do be pleasing to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. Well, God bless you. It's so good to see you this morning. You may be seated. We're going to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. And how many are enjoying your summer so far? Anybody? I know it's just kind of getting ramped up. We're basically in the first full week of summer. But I hope it's been good, enjoying the warmer weather. And hopefully some of you have been able to get away this summer or are planning to. And uh, I'm just uh, reminded that even during the summertime when we take breaks, you know, when it comes to being generous, how many have realized it's really a way you live? You're generous when you're on vacation. You're generous at home. You're generous here. It's a way uh, that, that, that you are when you come to know Christ. So as we give today, let's just remember that. Lord, thank you that we get to uh, have the opportunity to show our love for you, to show that you own us, and to display generosity. I pray you would bless this offering in a powerful way. Lord, we're grateful again for this offer, opportunity, for this reminder. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turn to spoke your name into the night and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written
Amen. If you believe that, say amen. 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 All right. Thank you, worship team. Appreciate you guys. Hey, if you are a guest with us today, there is a Connect card that is going to be in the uh, seat back in front of you. If you're in the front row, just turn around, reach your hand. There will be one there. Um, But we uh, we would love it if you would help us today and complete one of those. Bring it to our guest services desk back here. They have a gift for you, and we'd love to say officially a thank you for you being here today. We have a new person to praise that actually can't be here because they're really tiny and they can't drive yet. Their name is Asher Luke Michael. Let's put his picture up there. I think we've got it somewhere. At least I believe we do. There he is. And uh, he was born June 6th, 6 pounds, 11 ounces, 19 and a quarter inch. He spent some time in the NICU, but he is home and doing well. So we want to say congratulations to Brian and Allison and uh, uh, Kylie and actually Savannah too. So congratulations, guys, and your little brother. Hey, a few announcements to make. Today is the final uh, installment of The Knot. How many have appreciated some of the teaching we've gotten from The Knot? Just yes say yes. Yes, okay. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, but uh, today will be our final session in The Knot today. And then next week, pastors are going to begin a new series uh, about freedom, about real freedom. So you don't want to miss that. Wednesday night this past week, we began our study on don't give the enemy a seat at your table. And that's again going to be this Wednesday. Ladies, make sure you see Jeannie and Sherry Lipscomb because how many know November 11th and 12th are going to be here in like a week, it seems like. It'll just be like, it'll be summer and then it'll be like fall right here. It just, it happens so quickly. Make sure you see them if you're interested in attending the uh, the Illuminate 22 Women's Conference. And then also um, the Make Ways VBS, it starts tomorrow. And so if you haven't registered your child, just see Miss Lucy this morning and just see about, uh, about that opportunity. But, the, but be in prayer. If you're not able to be here this week, please be in prayer uh, that the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus would really be uh, spoken loudly to these kids' lives. God bless you and have a wonderful day. Wow, rush in the summer, huh? And it does seem like it's going by pretty quickly already. Uh, last Sunday was Father's Day. Is that right? Seems like it was a month ago already. And uh, as you remember last week, because it was Father's Day, we announced our man of the year. And we try to keep it a secret. We don't want anyone to know. Just Frank Broom and I were the only two that know right up to that moment. And last week, as you know, our man of the year wasn't here. But he's here this morning. So, John Fonto, get up here. And Frank, come on up here. Yeah, come right up here. We, we want to, I just want to get a decent photo. We're, we already said all the nice stuff about you last week. Okay, okay so we're not going to repeat that, but we need, do need a, a, a good photo. And did you, did you happen to watch last week's? I did watch. Okay, all right. So you know, you already know why we appreciate you. Yes. So keep the smoke meats coming. Okay, <laughs> that was, that was no my problem. contribution. No problem. That was my praise for you, and Frank had other more spiritual things to say. But uh, appreciate you. We want to get a photo for our website for this. One, two, three. There you go. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you for serving us. Thank you. Yeah, you always take a chance with Man of the Year. Again, we don't want them to know, but we're hoping they'll be here. And uh, hey, whatever, he, he did watch and we congratulated him while he was home. Um, yeah, the, the last installment of The Knot about marriage. And uh, in a few moments, we're going to conclude. Um, but men and women, huh? Husbands and wives. Yikes. And I, I debated, I found a, a video, very brief, it's very fast-paced, so you got to listen and watch carefully, it'll be over in the blink of an eye, <clears throat> but I thought it, it just kind of touched on some of the things that we can experience in our own marriages. Uh, so we'll start off with that. Let's go ahead and show that video clip. I never wanted to be a husband. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, ladies, there's not a man in this room that wants to be a husband. No man woke up one day and was like, you know what? I'm tired of making my own decisions. I would like to be questioned all the time about everything I do. Why'd you park there? I don't know why you park there. Why? 
Why would you park there? I don't know why. Oh, I can't take it, man. I lose it. Fine! Tell me where to park, boss. Tell me where you're gonna park this car, please. Oh my God, you're mad. You have anger problems. No, I have wife problems. Because I park this car all the time by myself. I never get mad. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's you. I've never once parked my car and said, why did I park here? Oh man, there's so much good stuff out there. And it's okay to poke fun at it, but it is serious business too. Um, before we get to the serious part, I have something else I want to share with you. And this is, this is an old item I found years ago. It's called personals problems. Um, and I say it's old because you remember, how many remember newspapers? Okay, you know, paper, newspapers thrown out onto your lawn, under a bush, on the roof, wherever. Um, but back in the day, you could place personal ads in the newspaper, okay? And today, I guess you have other means of social media. But uh, this one here is from quite a while ago. See, he said, this guy writes, he says, after four years of separation, my wife and I finally divorced amicably. I wanted to date again, but had no idea of how to start. So I decided to look in the personals column of the local newspaper. After reading through all the listings, I circled three that seemed possible in terms of age and interests, but I put off calling any of them. Two days later, there was a message on my answering machine from my ex-wife. The message said, I came over to your house the other day to borrow some tools, and I saw the ads that you had circled in the newspaper. Don't call the one in the second column. It's me. Doesn't that tell us something? I mean, you know, the very person we tried to get away from is the person we want to be with. And uh, I just thought that was so classic. That was just so, so, so incredibly enlightening. But anyways, we spent a number of weeks so far uh, being reminded of what God has to say about marriage, about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives. And this morning, I want to speak to you concerning the covenant of marriage and the marriage vow. We're going to talk about vows this morning. As I previously mentioned to you over the past few weeks, our culture just doesn't get marriage. Our culture and our society is not a friend to marriage. Uh, biblical marriage, obviously. And yet, you know what? Everyone wants to get married. Um, sociologists tell us that 95% of Americans will marry. And yet it's certain that most people still don't understand the depth and the seriousness surrounding the marriage vow. The divorce rate today, by the way, for what it's worth, the divorce rate is not 50%, okay? And you can do more research in this yourself. The divorce rate is now 21 out of 1,000. That's 21%. 21 out of 1,000. Am I right? My math minute, maybe two point. It can't be two, but whatever. It's not one for every two, okay? The divorce rate is 21 out of 1,000. I knew there was a reason I wrote it that way. And that's up from 12 out of 1,000 30 years ago. And so we have a situation today whereby people rush into marriage without much forethought. They're elated, they're elated to jump into the bonds of matrimony, but at the same time, it looks apparent that they're, they're looking for the key to the locks just about as soon as they sign the wedding certificate. And I'm not sure today how much my message is going to make sense to you if you, do, you know, if you don't know Christ, if you're not born again, or you're not a person who holds to the ultimate authority of Scripture. It may not make a lot of sense to you, but I want every Christian here to sincerely heed what the Bible says, what I'm going to be sharing with you concerning vows and covenants, specifically, of course, the vow and covenant of marriage. How many know that making a vow is a very serious matter? It is. It really is. And it's not something we think about on a day-to-day -day basis in our lives. Who uses the term vow? We talk about contracts. We don't even use the word covenant anymore. But I want us to start out with Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we're going we're gonna to look at verses 1 through 7, a very definitive chapter on the topic of vows. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart 
to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Now, I want you to look at this. Look at how serious this is. He says, do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Vows are serious matters. This passage told us that if you make a vow, do not delay in fulfilling it. Do not fail to keep it. And again, do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And so it's clear to me that we ought to be very careful when we make a vow unto the Lord. Maybe that's one of the reasons we don't talk or speak in terms of vows or make vows because we don't want to get in trouble. But today's emphasis is specifically on the moment when we're standing there at the front of the church, at the church altar, hand in hand with our spouse-to-be, the minister before us, guiding us through the marriage vows. I mean, just think about this setting. Besides the wedding party, the best man, the groomsman, the maid of honor, bridesmaids, parents, witnesses, there is yet someone else who's present at that wedding. And he is there witnessing that vow. And his name is Al Shaddai. God Almighty is at that wedding. Marriage, the marriage vow really cannot be transacted without God. Biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is one man and one woman before God. And any other option is unacceptable. Now, Matthew 18, 16 tells us that every matter is to be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. And there were witnesses, even if you had just a few of you before justice of the peace, there were witnesses there at your wedding. And most importantly, God was there. And he was witnessing your testimony of future fidelity and a lifelong commitment to your spouse. You uttered those words and God was there. You see, I wish that young couples today would feel this pressure. And I wish that at least three thoughts would flood their minds when when I'm walking them through their wedding ceremony. First, I wish they'd listen to their vow and decide that no matter what, they would never divorce. In sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, in good times and bad. Except for death, we will stay committed to one another. I I, I want them to to listen to what they're saying and then to mean it. And secondly, if that promise to, to each other isn't heavy enough, I wish that they would understand that should they both someday choose to divorce, I wish they'd understand that to each one of their witnesses, whether there have been 100, 200, 300 people, however many had attended their wedding, upon their divorce... They become liars before each one of those witnesses because they made a pledge. They made a vow. They made a promise. They made it freely. They made it publicly, but apparently didn't mean it. And thirdly, if you don't care about what those witnesses might think, just remember again that God was there. He also witnessed your vow. He saw your lips move. He heard your voice. And you know what? He believed you. God believed you. And listen, I'm not trying to beat up on those of you who may have already ended a marriage, you're already divorced sometime in your past. What's done is done. But for everyone who's married today, I'm speaking to you. I want you to look with me to Matthew 19, verse 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And we've covered that in the weeks past. 
And so they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, it wasn't the minister as much as we play that role. It wasn't the state of Delaware or the state of Maryland or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that made you two to become one. You understand that? You still need to be legally married in the eyes of the state. But verse 6, what God has joined together, literally yoked together as a pair of oxen, God is a big part of the vow that we make on our wedding day and it should not be taken lightly. And some of you might be wondering too, well, aren't, old te- aren't, aren't vows old, an Old Testament thing? I mean, we just we read out of Ecclesiastes this morning. But you know, the answer is no. Vows are not simply Old Testament. They are also mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 18, verse 18, where we read that the Apostle Paul, at least once, he personally made a vow He had his hair cut off as a testimony to his vow. He was on his way from Sancria to Ephesus. And so clearly vows were continuing into the New Testament times. In fact, Jesus addressed these in Matthew chapter 5. I want us to look at the Gospels. Matthew 5 verse 31. Listen to this. Jesus says, or it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes, Or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, the first passage we read speaks of divorce, the first part of this passage. And the second passage speaks about vows. And I've had us read these two segments together because really Jesus, I believe, is speaking about both of these in one context. It's as though as we read those passages, he is linking marriage and divorce and vows all together. And I hope you can see that. He talks about marriage and he talks about vows. That they're, they're really one package. And, and theologians and Bible scholars, by the way, they have announced, they have, they have stated that these pronouncements by Jesus are called the hard sayings of Jesus. These are the hard sayings of Jesus. And they are hard. Because you see, a lot of his followers even today are hoping that grace could somehow negate the law. Some Christians live with a theology of, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it now. And I'm going to get forgiveness later. Because I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. The Bible says I'm under grace. And if you remember, Paul had to, he rhetorically, but he had to address this issue because some Christians were sinning because, you know, I mean, where where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And Paul says, then should we go on sinning? Should we go on sinning so that grace would increase? Paul says, no, absolutely not. God forbid is what Paul said. You see, God's grace is a remedy, not a license. It's not a permit. It's a solution not permission. And so if you're under the misconception that the law has been done away with, I want you to think again. Listen to what Jesus said about this. This is Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law says, Do not murder, but I say, Do not hate your brother or call him a fool. The law says, Do not commit adultery, but I say, Don't even look at a woman with lust. And then verse 31, Moses allowed divorce, but I am saying do not divorce. To do so would be sin, except in the case of sexual immorality. Again, these are Jesus' hard sayings. They've been labeled that way. And then finally, verse 33, Jesus says, a long time ago, people made vows. And then he says, do not make a vow. Do not make a promise. Just do it. Just like the old Nike ad. The old Nike suit, just do it. Let your yes be yes. In other words, Jesus is suggesting that we go beyond the vow 
and never allow a chance for failure. He's not taking away the concept of a vow. Rather, he's telling us to add fortitude to our commitments. Can you see this? It's really not meant to be obscure. It's easily understood. And what I'm trying to reveal to you today is this, that the glue that keeps us together should be a commitment based upon a vow. And if you're married, you said that vow. You exchanged vows, even if it was before a judge or justice of the peace. Again, it wasn't the judge that made the two of you one. It was God. Now, turn with me to one more example of the seriousness of the vow and the covenant. This is back in the Old Testament, looking at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi 2, verse 10 says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and in spirit. And what does the one God seek? What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one whom he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Verse 14, we read that God is a witness. In verse 14, God is a witness. As I've already told you, notice the mention of a marriage covenant in that passage. And then verse 16, several other Bible translations than the one I read actually include these words. And they're there in the ancient language, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew. But in verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. And just think about verse 16 in light of how seldom God ever tells us that he hates everything. As, there's only one other major place in the Bible where I know that God says he hates something. And it's, it's Proverbs where he, he has a list of seven abominations, seven things that God hates. In Revelation, we learn that he hates sexual perversion. And he hates demon worship. God hates those things. But that's about it. And then, of course, here in Malachi, this one we can add to the list. And yet be careful, too, because God, though he hates divorce, doesn't hate the divorcee. And the reason that he hates divorce is because he hates the destruction that follows in the wake of that tearing apart. I mean, just ask someone who's been divorced. Ask them about the rejection the crushed spirits, the wounded children, the confusion, the financial pain, the desperation. And you see, this is why we need to be committed not only to our spouse, but also to God's covenant of marriage. Not just committed to the other person, but to the very covenant of marriage. You see, I'm not committed to my marriage because I think my wife is gorgeous or that we love each other, or that she satisfies me, or that I think she's cute and sweet and wonderful and competent and a great cook. You see where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> Should be getting me some points. I'm committed to her because I'm committed to God's covenant of marriage. And I hope you can see that. My marriage isn't based upon the feelings of the moment. It is and always has been and always will be based upon a vow that I made on September 30th, 1978. Looked her in the face, exchanged vow, vows. The pastor heard them. The congregation heard them. God heard them because I was entering into a lifelong covenant that day with God as my witness. And so what I'm saying is this, we not only are to commit to the person whom we marry, but we're to commit to the vow.
We're to commit to the covenant that we entered into before Almighty God. And herein lies the problem in our society today. People don't value, people do not value commitment. I mean, I mean, they want commitment from others. Don't get me wrong. They want commitment from everybody else. But when the going gets rough, how quickly they can deny that whole concept of hanging in there, right? It happened, not just in marriage, but in all other aspects of life. And what a testimony the church could be. What a testimony we could have if we consistently modeled commitment in the workplace as Christians, amen? In the marketplace, honesty and commitment in our function as a church and, of course, in our marriages. We need to, as Christians, as people of the book, we need to take that book seriously. And making vows, entering into a vow is not something that we are to do casually. Malachi 2.14, do not even think, it says, do not even think about breaking faith with the wife of your youth, the wife of your marriage covenant. Vows are serious business. Now, before we close this message this morning, let me show you from the scriptures that biblically there are four ways that a vow can be changed or broken. God has made a provision whereby a vow, in particular, a marriage vow, can be broken. And the first is in Romans chapter 7. This is the first one I want to look at, verse, verses 1, 2, and 3. Romans 7, verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, Paul says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as a person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, notice here that this is in reference to the law of marriage. A little bit stronger than just a vow or a covenant. And I'm not sure how you feel about the law this morning, but I do want you to know this. When you think of the law, biblical law, God's law, I want you to know that God's law is an expression of his holiness. It's an expression of his perfect, immutable, and righteous character. That's what it is. It's a very high standard, and it represents who he is. In fact, the, 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 the Apostle John wrote that God's laws are not burdensome. They're not meant to be burdensome. They're not meant to be you're not, grievous. They're not meant to be harsh. They're there for our benefit. God's laws, they, they, they manifest, they exemplify what God is like. And that's why we're to keep his law. It's an expression of God's heart. And with that in mind, the marriage law forbids the disillusion of that holy relationship called marriage, except by death. And so although it's not very profound, one way for a vow to be broken is by death. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Romans 7 to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. I want you to see another way in which the marriage vow may be broken. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, Paul says. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And again, Paul said, not I, the Lord. To the rest I say this, and now he says, I'm saying this, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Now, that does not mean saved. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, their children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is no longer bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife. And so we see here in this passage instruction from Paul justifying divorce. Paul's overall desire in this chapter is that single people, this is the context, that single people would stay single and the married people stay married. No, don't just leave it. Just wherever you are, just stay there. And he's, and he's professing this, he's teaching this because he believes in the imminent return of Christ. In other words, Jesus is coming back. It's 2,000 years ago, but he's teaching them Jesus could come back tomorrow, so don't even make wedding plans. 
Also, don't see a lawyer. Don't divorce, don't marry, don't change a thing. Just focus on Jesus because he's coming back soon. That's why he's saying this. However, he is aware of the existence of many marriages in the church of his time, and he's writing the church in Corinth, and they had many mixed marriages, meaning that one spouse may have gotten saved and the other one's not yet saved. A lot of that was happening just as it does today. I mean, one is saved and the other is content to live the old life. And his advice here is simple. If your unconverted spouse is happy to remain married to you, then stay married and pray for their salvation. Hopefully you'll have an influence in their life. Maybe there'll be some real change and they will come to Christ. And you know, it may be a challenge to, to stay with that person. They don't, maybe they ridicule you. Maybe they reject you because of your faith. You know, you just, you just can't be as intimate and close as you want to be because of this, this chasm of faith versus no faith. A love for God and no concern at all for godly things. But Paul says to hang in there. Even if it's a hard task, strive to be a good witness to that unsaved spouse. And you know, the Apostle Peter gave the same instruction in his epistle. He gave encouragement to wives who were married to non-Christians. In 1 Peter 3, 1, he wrote this. He said, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence in your lives. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 7 for a minute. So if your unsaved spouse deserts you, does not want to be married to you, Paul says, let them go. The believing man or, be, uh, or believing woman is no longer bound. Bound to what? Marriage. The vow of marriage. Let's look at a third way in which a, a vow may be dissolved. This is Matthew 19, verse 1 through 9. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We already read these verses a moment ago. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Jesus excuse me, did Moses command, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. He allowed you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, we don't have time today, but Sometime on your own, just spend some time contrasting the character of Jesus versus the character of the Pharisees. That's not hard to do, is it? I mean, Jesus is perfect, sinless, flawless. He's God incarnate. You want to look at the Pharisees, you'll see carnal nature. You'll see the selfishness of human beings just, just emanate from them. And so in this case, that's where they're coming from. And Jesus gives them a righteous answer. And Jesus makes it clear that a person can divorce their spouse for adultery. Now, that doesn't mean the marriage has to dissolve. It doesn't mean they have to divorce because of that marital unfaithfulness. It, it could be worked out. There could be room for reconciliation. But you see what Jesus is saying, because of the unfaithfulness of the one partner, the vow has already been violated. The vow has already been broken. But let me say this, that although the vow has been broken, there's always the possibility, and thankfully I've seen this over and over again over the years of pastoral ministry, where couples have messed up and they've come back together and they've renewed their vows. But here they're not obligated. You don't have to, but you can and then finally, there's a fourth way that a vow can be changed. And we're going to look at Numbers chapter 30, verse 1 through 8. Numbers 30, verse 1. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. 
When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. That's a vow. When a young woman still living in her father's household makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge, and her father hears about her vow or pledge, but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. If she marries after she makes a vow or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself, and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her, then her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband forbids her when he hears about it, he nullifies the vow that obligates her or the rash promise by which she obligates herself, and the Lord will release her. In other words, the intent of this rule is that someone in a position of authority over another has the final veto on an oath or a vow made by someone under their authority. If a father finds out that their daughter made this pledge, and he finds out and he acts quickly, he acts right away, then the vow isn't going to be held in place. And obviously, you know, minors, even in our day, minors in our day, in our homes today, they cannot enter into lawful agreements. We're going right back to that dealership and we're returning that car. But I want to caution you in this one matter, okay? In situations that are, that are described here, the father or the husband are to take action as soon as they hear. If they don't, it stands. If there's a substantial delay, that vow stays in place. Let me close with a final thought. Vows and covenants. Again, it sounds contractual, sounds legal. What I want you to understand is that it's based, vows and covenants are based more on relationship than law. It's based more in relationship. And so our intent with, say, the marriage vow, the marriage covenant, is to understand that no one, not one of us, will ever be perfect. Amen. We will never be perfect. I mean, I've, I've found one person who's almost perfect, and I caught her. Again, that should get me some bonus points. Not one of us is perfect. Wow, I got failed twice. I hope you're admitting it in your heart. And because of that, we are going to have to rely upon the vow that we made sometime in the past in particular to married people. And so I want to encourage those of you who are married, even in the darkest of times, the most difficult of moments, I want to encourage you to hang in there, to commit yourself to the marriage covenant, to your marriage vows. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that as, as much as this may have seemed a lesson in Old Testament law, Lord Jesus, you also spoke about it in the Gospels. And Lord, I thank you that even in your word, Paul, the Apostle Paul, made a vow and he kept it. And Lord, so there may be a place where we have to keep that kind of commitment. For those of us that are married, we're already in that commitment. We're already connected through a marriage covenant. And Lord, I pray that every one of us would do everything we can to protect our marriages and the marriages of others. That we do everything we can to strengthen them, to strengthen that commitment. Lord, to the point where your church would look like an anomaly to this, to this world that's so careless with sin. And Lord, for those who have been divorced and gone through that, they understand. They understand everything I've talked about today. And most of them or many of them have found their way into another relationship and they're married. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would strengthen those marriage bonds, that their new marriage would be a testimony of what you can do, that you can re reconcile, that you can rebuild, that you can restore. 
Lord, I pray, God, that you would continue to make your church a testimony and a light to this world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, I pray, Lord, your blessing in every relationship that we have. Lord, I thank you for the, Lord, for the, the relationship we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of your body. Lord, I pray, God, that we would, that we would endeavor, that we would see a transformation of your church all across this nation. Lord, for two years, our, our fellowship was inhibited by, by mass and cynicism and skepticism and, and, and all kinds of fake news and, and so much divisiveness. And Lord, I pray, God, that relationships would be made new, that they truly would be restored, that they be deepened. I thank you, Lord, that we need each other and that we are commanded to love one another. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would do that for us and again, through your church across our nation. And I pray your blessing now on your flock in Jesus' name. Amen.